our great God, our great God, speak your word now to your people. Holy Spirit, have room to move through me, and I pray just as much and more so even in spite of me. You speak to the needs of our hearts in every way, and would you lift yourself up so that we might see you and revel in you. This is what we ask as we come now. All for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Well, isn't it a wonder then that when we place our faith in Christ, that now we have this new role in the world. Salvation isn't just an, an individual kind of thing. We have a calling of God and a new place in history, if you want to put it that way, a new place in our nation, in our culture. And we may never be the headliners like the Moseses, right? But the host of heaven is on tiptoe leaning forward, looking in at the details of your life and my life, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, and seeing that eternal work is being done in the daily and weekly decisions that you and I carry out. Now we are called ambassadors. Now we've been given this message of reconciliation. It hasn't been given to anybody but those who know Christ. It is ours to carry to the world. We are enlisted now as priests of the Most High God individually and as we've just even practiced corporately in a certain way. We're now called to make disciples in all the nations of the world. Isn't that a wonder this morning? Who is sufficient for these things, right? As Paul said, so we agree. But we are these things. We are called in this way. And ultimately, the Lord is the one who is sufficient if we are but willing. We see that afresh in our passage today. That's not a new message, but we see it afresh here in the life of Moses. This morning, as we hear God's word from Exodus, we come to the preparation of God's deliverer. Um, did you know that Moses needed a little bit of preparation? Would you be encouraged to know that the great Moses needed a little bit of help? In fact, by golly needed a whole lot of rescuing and retraining and mercy and grace. We pick up just after the revelation of the burning bush as we're here in the middle of chapter 4. Moses at this point has used up his excuses that he came to the Lord with. Well, I'm not, I'm, who am I, you know, Lord, to do this thing? What, what, what am I going to say when they ask who sent me? I don't speak so good like. Um, why, he's just got excuse after excuse because, um, let's give him credit, he understands some of the weight and the glory and the privilege and the monumental task of his commission, do we? And so um, I'm encouraged as I see the Lord tenderly answering all those questions and yet even now continuing his work of preparing Moses. Moses now will embrace the impossible, and he's going to begin to move out, even, even with some trepidation in his soul, and we'll see him waver and even falter at different times, but yet he goes, and he begins to move out in the commission of the Lord, and he leaves that burning bush, and he returns home with his sheep. Did you remember he had a bunch of sheep out there just like wandering all over the place while he was having a talk with Yahweh? First, we're going to see that for this great and unique work of God, that the wheels are now turning. The wheels are now turning. In fact, that's the Lord's encouragement to him. Pick up in uh, chapter 4, 
starting verse 18, then Moses departed and he returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he said to him, please let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and he mounted them on a donkey and he returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. Pause right there. Moses now sets out on the Lord's adventure and it is no less an adventure for you or for me to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, is it? No less an adventure. I want you to notice um, what I think is a keynote as it's recorded for us in this way. Um, the obedience of Moses. Um, he's still scared, and we'll see that. Um, but notice the obedience. Um, he, verse 20, he took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey. What does it mean that he's taking his wife and his sons? Answer, means he's intending to leave for good. It's not like, hey, honey, I got this like gig, um, and Yahweh said he, he wants me, uh, temporary assignment, right, be back in a couple weeks or something like that. No, he's moving his family. You think, well, that's maybe not a big deal. Well, but pause and think about that move, right? How long has he been in Midian? 40 years. Where is he going? Back to a place where the people that he has known, um, if they're still alive, are slaves, and uh, he's a convicted murderer, and things are pretty rough, but he's like, I'm, I'm taking it all. This is, um, this is burn the ships, right? No return. Let's give him some credit for that. And he's also obedient uh, to do, as it uh, said in verse 17, you shall take in your hand the staff with which you shall perform the signs. And so that's the last note in verse 20. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. We talked at length about that um, last time we were together in Exodus, the first part of chapter 4, so I'll leave that there. But just notice, Moses is all again wavering uh, but going. Next, I want you to notice that... Um, what, uh, what the nature of the Lord's encouragement is to him at this point. Some have said that Moses uh, uh, profoundly demonstrates his lack of faith in two places in this passage, but honestly, I'm not so sure. Um, you can decide for yourself, but I'll just uh, raise the issues for you, and I'll show you where my best understanding would be and then um, what I think the right encouragement is in light of that. Notice the way he speaks to Jethro in 19. Please let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. Um, why doesn't he tell Jethro everything about Yahweh said? Um, answer, I don't know and neither do you because um, it's not in the passage. Uh, but we could guess that it could be, um, hey, I'm going to take your daughter and I'm going to go face the most powerful man in the world and I'm going to basically confront him with the one God of the universe and then we're going to gather, I don't know, a couple million people and we'll be right back. What do you do as a good father? You go, you ain't taking my daughter no place like that, right? I'm just saying that's a possibility. End of the day, I don't know. It's the second part of the statement, though, that really has caused some comments. Return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. A couple of folks that I um, spent time with this week um, have noted that this is a profound lack of faith. Here is Moses after Yahweh has told him all that he's going to do, coming and saying, I don't know, Jethro, if these guys are even still breathing, but I'm just going to go back and check that out. I think that's probably a misunderstanding because what we have here is actually a Hebrew idiom. And the words literally translated say something like, if they are still alive. But in idiom, in usage, it is a phrase that just as easily can mean to see about their welfare, 
which in, kind of includes whether or not they're still breathing. But it's a far more general statement. There's nothing deceptive or negative about it. I don't think it's to be a weighted statement. That's my understanding, though. So leave that with you. The second thing to note is the Lord's revelation back to him. All the men who are seeking your life are dead. But even more important than that, notice the first part of verse 19. The Lord said to Moses in Midian. Did you understand? This is a second revelation of God to Moses. This is after the whole bush thing. He has come back and he speaks to Jethro and God speaks to him again. This has led to the very natural question. Is this a demonstration of Moses' lack of faith? Because he's not getting going, so God's got to come and prod him along and say, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking life are now dead. That's possible. It is certainly not a dumb possibility. There's nothing in the passage that says one way or the other. But I tend to land on this side that this is not because Moses has necessarily failed at this point or that he is lacking in faith, per se. I think he's struggling. But I think what we have here is the Lord just comes voluntarily to give him added encouragement at this point. He has faithfully gone to Jethro, which he should have done, secured the freedom from the patriarch, his father-in-law, to take his wife and children and go. And now the Lord comes to give him added insurance. Okay, Moses, you got a lot on your plate, including facing the most powerful man on the face of the earth and all of his armies and rescuing a couple of million slaves. And, oh, by the way, I'm going to just do some miracles through you, if you're up to that this week. But on top of that, he says, by the way, you're a convicted murderer. But you know what? That part of it has already been taken care of. That part of it is a non-issue. You can rest your pretty little head peacefully on your pillow tonight, Moses, because you don't have to worry about whether or not the first thing they do when they see you is to chuck you in jail, bring you to trial, and kill you, because that is water under the bridge. I could talk a bit about the understanding in the ancient Near East when a ruler passes from the scene. It is, it's not in the law books per se, but it's also a custom, a common custom that um, the unresolved laws against a person in many cases can go by the wayside, right? They can be forgiven and you move on. It's a new uh, administration, if you will. So all that to say, I think that's exactly what the Lord is speaking to Moses at this point. Look, I want you to focus on what I've called you to do, and I've taken care of everything else that regards you. Here's the point, and this is why I've said it this way in my understanding. Um, the wheels are now turning is the encouragement that Yahweh gives to Moses on this huge task. Uh, I, I take this from Phil Riken, who is very astute to point this out. I think it's the right way to see what's happening in this passage. He reassures him, I have called you to a mighty task, but apart from you, and even before you've done a anything, hundreds or maybe it's thousands of miles away, I didn't do the math and check it out, someplace beyond your reach, I'm already at work. I'm already doing what needs to be done. This mighty calling will be borne out because I'm doing it. What a great encouragement for Moses as he sets out on the Lord's adventure. Well, this is just the beginning of many challenges that are before him. In fact, what we're going to see next is that before him lie great challenges, but also with him goes a greater God. Great challenges, but a greater God, these huge obstacles in the way. Pick up in verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, 
When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I've put in your power. That, by the way, is the Hebrew word hand, right? I put these in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that, you, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Well, as you can imagine, our whole message this morning could really be verses 21 through 23 because there's so much here. But I just want to take a couple of takeaways. First, I want you to notice the promise of God's continued presence with Moses in 21. When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform all the wonders which I have put in your hand. I've told you that I am the God who is with you, and I will surely be with you. There's a new piece of information here, actually. We were told before that the signs were to be performed for who? The Israelites, so that they would believe Moses. Now God says, you're going to stand before Pharaoh. You will surely place your feet in his court, Moses, and you're going to do the same miracles that I've already done once. I will be with you. Moses won't be alone because he could never do it alone. Notice next the multiplied difficulties that are before him. Second half of 21. See that you perform all the wonders which I've put in your power, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let people go. Okay, already what is the score here? Already what is the, uh, uh, the script that Moses finds himself written into. Well, we have one outcast shepherd ex-murderer against the one who is the incarnation of the gods on the face of the earth and the leader of the most powerful people of that day. Well, that's tough enough, but God at this point adds a couple more obstacles for Moses. By the way, I just want to encourage you, you have no idea how hard this is going to be, the Lord tells him. Now also there is the promise of Pharaoh's stubbornness. I will harden his heart. Rest assured, know ahead of time, he will reject you at every turn. He will despise you. You will only make him more and more angry. And so with that also comes the promise of his rejection. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Hey, I have an impossible plan for you, but don't worry about it because it won't work. At least if we stop there. That is his commission. That, by the way, is very much the commission that Yahweh gave to Isaiah. Speak to a people of hard and stubborn hearts. To them I hold out my hand all day long. They will be a people hearing but not believing seeing but not understanding. The Lord does this with his people. Are you prepared for this? Sometimes. I don't think that's something we pound our chest and say, I'm so righteous and you're so dumb and you just don't get it, that this is just the way it is. I think we hear these words and we fall on our knees and we say, oh Lord God, grant me the grace to be courageous and loving. Grant me the grace that when I speak truth and I am rejected for it, that it causes me to weep all the more and grieve for those whose eyes are not yet open. Because, Lord, but for the grace of God, there go I. Right? Great challenges before Moses, but it is a greater God that goes with him. 
as you desire to serve the Lord in whatever capacity you do, rejection may in fact come even as you do the will of the Lord. In fact, because you do the will of the Lord. But just know that obstacles are not necessarily the evidence that you are not doing God's will. In fact, they are at times the evidence that you are, right? This is what the Lord promises Moses. In fact, all of that leads to the main difficulty here. Are you ready? We're not even there yet. The main difficulty here is not just that there will be stubbornness and not just that there will be rejection and, if you will, failure. Do you know what the real problem is? The real problem is God is the one behind all of that because that's exactly what he says. He is the one creating the obstacles in verse 21. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Wouldn't you love, for Moses' sake at this point, for the Lord to say, you know what, Pharaoh is a super stubborn dude. But don't worry, because I'll be the one tenderizing his heart and wooing and drawing and winning him over. No! He says, I will make sure that that Pharaoh really, he's going to hate you. Now we've got a real problem, a real problem for Moses. This is going to be a theme throughout the book of Exodus, which you are well aware of. This single phrase, I will harden his heart, could be an entire message in itself. We're going to see it plenty of times this morning, I and mean, plenty of times in the book, and so I won't solve it this morning. Twenty times there will be references to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the book of Exodus. Uh, one person has said ten times the hardening is ascribed to Pharaoh, and ten times the hardening is ascribed to Yahweh. Um, I actually had done my own work before I read that, so I slightly disagree. Um, I think of the 10 times that Pharaoh gets credit, he doesn't get credit all, uh, it's not actually him all 10. I would say about 10 Yahweh, about a half dozen Pharaoh, and then there's about another half dozen where it just, you don't know. It just says, Pharaoh's heart was hard. And you go, well, what does that mean? I don't know. It just means that what God said would happen is exactly what happened. What is then the point here at this point? The point here at this point is that these signs that Moses is commanded to do are not for the purpose of producing faith. The signs that Moses is going to do before Pharaoh have been ordained by God for what? To produce recalcitrance, to produce stubbornness, to make him more opposed. Why? is God's ultimate goal to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. You already know the answer because I've said it a few times. I think Brian has already said it, and you're going to keep hearing it. That's not his ultimate goal. He is a saving God, and praise God that he is. But his ultimate goal in Exodus is to bring glory to his name. And he has chosen that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Yes, Pharaoh is fully guilty. He is entirely culpable. That is beyond question. It is his fault that he hardened his heart in his arrogance. No question. And at the exact same time, there is no question that Yahweh has superintended, he has ordained from beforehand to harden Pharaoh's heart in order to produce more glories, to multiply his wonders. Those are both true at the exact same time, and if I can't solve it, and you can't either, I'm okay with that, but that's what the passage teaches us in spades. Here's the good news. 
when Moses comes and Pharaoh gets more and more stubborn, he goes, you know what? This is exactly what Yahweh said. This is exactly what he promised. I am walking in the very footsteps of God. I can't believe this. I'm seeing it happen. I mean, I would have been pretty convinced by the frog thing. I, I totally would have been down with the gnats because those just ruin you, right? I mean, I'm bit from head to toe. And this guy just gets more and more crazy. And it's exactly what Yahweh said would happen. First takeaway from this section I want to give to you is this, to chew on this week. And man, I've been chewing on it and I need to keep chewing on it. The obstacles to the plan may be the plan. <laughs> That's the takeaway. The first takeaway. What you and I see as the obstacles to the plan, that may be the plan. Because that was God's plan here. The plan was for Pharaoh to be an obstacle so that God could do the greater work. I thought you were trying to get the people out of Egypt. Just turn the dude's heart and we'll be done. I'll get them out. But the obstacles are my plan. It is the plan of God to multiply his wonders and reveal the glory of his name. And friends, you know why that is so freeing? As an imperfect, stubborn, flailing, prideful, lustful, greedy, selfish man of God is because I need the obstacle sometimes to remind me so often that what I think is the plan is so often not the plan. <laughs> his plan is to glorify his name. And that's a hurdle I can get under every time. Because I'm offering you a perfect canvas, Lord. Glorify yourself through me. Because if you do anything, everybody will look on and say, really, through him? If the Lord can use me, then, then great. If he can use you, then praise God. The obstacles to the plan may be the plan. Now, I said may because this is just one passage in Scripture. Sometimes the obstacles may be because you're obstinate and you're banging your head against the wall, and it's time to submit and listen. But I'll leave you to decide which is which. It may be because I've just decided I know what's right, and, you know, the Lord's fighting against me. But it may be that you're exactly in his will, and that is profoundly encouraging. How is the Lord preparing you? How this week do you need to pause and consider, Lord, is this obstacle your plan? And embrace it and walk faithfully and experience the freedom of knowing that he is doing his good will. This is freeing because the Lord is never hemmed in. That leads us to the second takeaway in this section, and that is this. You need the Lord God to guide you in his way. You and I need the Lord God to guide you in his way in his way. And you're, you're scratching your head. You're going, that's not very profound, Frank. I think I knew that before I came to church this morning. Yes, you do. And so do I already know it, but I can't be reminded often enough. I want you to notice a few things. I want you to notice that Yahweh will make a direct challenge to Pharaoh and call for his utter submission. You want to get a picture of how impossible this plan is, what the odds are that this is going to work, then here, in, in, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, this phrase, is it rightly, should be um, received. In verse uh, 22, he says to Moses, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord. Guess what? We have ancient Egyptian documents that say, Thus says Osiris. Thus says the great sun god Ra. Right? 
they know this formula. It was well used even in the pagan cultures of the day. When Moses, the little, you know, shepherd ex-murderer punk, comes and stands before Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh. Pharaoh understands clearly what that means. He is proclaiming, I am God and you are my subject. What's Pharaoh going to do with that? I ain't nobody's subject. In fact, I'm God, is the way Pharaoh sees the world work. You need the Lord God to guide you in his way. Because the things that the Lord calls his children to do and the responsibilities he gives us as ambassadors and priests and, and uh, those who carry the message of reconciliation, you know what? Those are not hard. They're impossible. And you know what? I occasionally, I often fall into the, the wrong thinking of, man, God has called me to do something hard. No, he hasn't. He's called us to do the impossible. So you need the Lord God to guide you in his way. Notice how Yahweh speaks tender words in this impossible calling. He speaks tender words over his people, tender, tender words of protection. 22, thus, says, thus you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. This is the precursor of the language when Jesus calls his father Abba. And he invites us to now call him father. This is a word that's used, this is a, a relationship that's used very carefully in the Old Testament. It's not, a, it's not a flood of, you know, father and son. It's occasional. I think that's because, as the commentators have said, it can have pagan overtones of we are the offspring of God. No, you're not. Not in that sense. But it's, but it's here and it's rich. And in Christ, we are adopted as sons. Here, the statement is used of the nation. And he comes to Pharaoh and he says, um, you got my kid there. I want him back. If you refuse, I'll kill your kid. And that's what he will do. And we are not meant to see that as something that we should entirely understand in an easy, laissez-faire kind of understanding. It should bring us grief. It is a profound tragedy that Pharaoh's heart will be hard and that he will lose his own son and so will many in Egypt. The message will go out, put the blood over the doorposts and the death angel will pass over you. And I'm inclined to think that there are some Egyptians who get the message and believe and do it. Why do I think that? Because when they leave Israel, it's not all Israelites that go. It's a mixed multitude, it says. There are rabble. There are Egyptians that go with them. Anyway, the point is, God calls for those who will listen. In the midst of what we have here at this point is an incredibly tender word that really from this point, from Exodus 4, is going to drive the action all the way to the very end of the plagues at the end of chapter 14. Let my son go, my firstborn, or you will forfeit your firstborn. And that's what will happen. What we have in the same breath are tender words of protection over his people and dire warnings spoken over those who would try to thwart him. Who is sufficient for these things, right? As priests of the Most High God, when we open our mouth to speak of the grace of Christ, we are to some an aroma of life to life. And we are to others the aroma of death to death, right? That's the same calling we have. 
So you and I need the Lord God to guide you, to guide us in his way. In the words of the Christian band City Alight, who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Who else could make every king bow down? Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? Only a holy God. This is a lofty truth, but it's also meant to be a regular experience for the child of God. This is not something alone for Moses, as I've said and already connected the dots. It's meant to be our experience of the Lord's guiding by his spirit who now lives in every child of God who's come to be born again by faith. You know, um, this week, on at least three separate occasions, do you know that the Lord spoke to me? Three times, at least. I thought back on it. At least three times I could distinctly remember God spoke to me. And I sensed his presence. And each one of them happened as I was reading his word. And that's what he wants for me every single day. What he wants for every child of God every single day. I'm not special. That's just what he promised. There was his son named Emmanuel, God with us. And there is his spirit now dwelling in us. And oh, how I need the Lord God to guide me in his way. This is where the God of fire is going to help Moses. And he has come to help you. This is where the God who is with his people, this is where the God of I am is meant to be the self-existing, always existing, ever eternal one present with you, if you will but follow and seek. He alone is dangerous and sufficient for all the needs of his child. Praise God for that. Amen. So seek that this week. You and I can have that this week. That is amazing. The Lord God to guide you and to guide me. All right, now we come to what is, and I am not exaggerating, absolutely one of the strangest passages in all of Exodus. And potentially, you can vote at lunch with your friends, the strangest passage in all of Scripture. But the lesson... And everybody who preaches, whatever passage they preach, they always use, you know, superlative. This is the most, the greatest, the whatever, right? I don't think I'm exaggerating. But the message is the same. The Lord is still preparing Pharaoh, uh, preparing Moses. And as someone has said, before the Lord can use a man greatly, he must humble a man greatly. And if you get nothing else from the next few verses, uh, parents, I'll apologize now if your kids are here because you'll have to talk about this. That's the point. We see the Lord's discipline and rescue. Pick up in 24. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So Yahweh let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Pause there. You're like, whoa, where did that come from? Well, simply put, what we have here is Yahweh is preparing Moses, who has apparently 
been negligent to obey what was a very clear command of God, and not just a command of God, but arguably one of the most important obediences that was symbolic of all of the covenant. What is going on here is it seems, and this is my best take, and you can find other takes on it, but I really believe the best take, is as they begin to travel, Moses is walking with a disobedience in his heart. I don't know to what degree he's been negligent or openly rebellious against God. I just know he didn't do something he had to do. And what was that? Circumcise his son. And so somehow God decides he's going to kill Moses. In fact, in the Hebrew, the phrase that says he sought to kill the Lord is uh, the kind of phrase that you say um, he about had him dead, right? He was well on the way to having him killed. Whoa, what a turn in the passage. Unless you've been following from the beginning that the Lord is preparing Moses. And just pause for a minute and consider if he's going to lead a couple million Israelites out of Israel in the Passover. Do you know what is one of the clearest and most peculiar commands in order for a Hebrew male to be able to celebrate the Passover? You know what it is because I said the word male. He has to be circumcised. Wouldn't that be a little weird if Moses' own sons we're not circumcised. So what seems to be the case is uh, Moses, he might be in the, on his, in, in the throes of choking or overcome with some plague. We don't know. It doesn't state. Maybe Zipporah sees it. How does she know? I don't know. Did Moses say something? Does Yahweh reveal it to her? I don't know. But Zipporah does the job. Does she do it because Moses can't move? I don't know. All those are possibilities. But Moses is near his death. And so Zipporah does the job to circumcise her son. And then she does something unusual. She actually takes the bloody foreskin. The translation in the NAS says that she throws it at his feet. That's one translation. Um, it actually touches him. All I'll say about it, uh, feet is this. It can be a euphemism for other parts. You'll see that in a lot of places in the Old Testament. And I think it is a euphemism here. I think she takes uh, the bloody skin and she touches it to Moses. And in so doing, she essentially applies it to Moses. And she says, look, obedience has been done. Spare his life. Let this blood cover him. And what's the very next verse? And Yahweh let him alone. And then she says, this is the famous uh, bloody bridegroom passage. Uh, if you read uh, literature on Exodus, uh, they just love to say the words, and sorry, I, did, I couldn't help it. I had to say it too. And what it seems is going on there is Zipporah is stating, look, I've won you back again. You were as good as dead, but I've purchased you back through blood, and so you are my husband afresh through blood. Wow, goodness, a lot going on there, okay? You still with me? Just nod your head so I know we're okay still this morning. Okay, good. There are three takeaways, because I honestly think this is... Um, the richest part of this whole passage this morning, if you can believe that. First, I don't think we can read this passage without pausing to ask ourselves, have you neglected your duty, your very clear and well-known duty before the Lord in any way? That's the first thing as believers we just have to read here because this is the great Moses. Has the Lord gone to some lengths to prepare him and to save him and to provide him and to raise him up and to call him? Oh my goodness, he has. And yet even the great Moses is on the brink of death because he was neglectful. And so the Lord 
comes to him and nearly kills him. There is so much that's not here that we would love to know, but we don't need to know it. So just be careful in what you assume and as you understand this passage. But what we do know is he neglected and the Lord fixed it. Is there anything where you've neglected your duty in any way? Man, I had to pause over this this week and I still need to continue to pause over this. But I want to encourage you, don't, don't, don't kill yourself on it. Just ask and commit yourself to honestly listen. Just do that. I think God is big enough to speak to you. You don't have to go beat yourself up and do penance. Just say, wow, Lord, is there something you've been trying to tell me? And he'll tell you. He'll show you. He'll make it clear. And don't you want to be in that place of safety? Oh, Lord, help me. I so do. Second, second, I want you to notice that he is disciplined and then rescued. But here's the question. Who is it that rescues him? Zipporah. You're starting to see a pattern with Moses? Well, first there was his mother who was his deliverer. Uh, and then there was, oh, let's see, another female, the daughter of Pharaoh, who was his rescuer. Oh, yeah, and then there was another little girl, his sister Miriam, who was his provider. And now it is his own wife who is his protector. And through her, his life is spared. No man or woman ever gets to the place where they are mightily used of God without a host of people whom God has used to bring them to that place. Amen? Amen. And if the Lord God uses you to do something glorious, huh, get on your knees and thank him for all the people, the parade of faithful believers and those who have prayed and, and Jesus himself interceding at the throne of heaven that you were protected and delivered to be able to walk in that privilege, right? This is part of the, pre the preparation for Moses to understand. It's not because you're great. You were nearly dead, but you got a good wife. So um, husbands, hug your wives. All right. So who has Yahweh used to help bring you into right relationship with him? Maybe there's someone he's used to bring you back into right relationship. This week would be a good week to go back and thank him, maybe. Who has he used to help you grow into deeper and richer relationship with him? Maybe a good week to thank him for that. Third takeaway I want to note, and I think you've probably already got it, but it is so sweet in this passage. We know that Moses gets disciplined and rescued. We know who it is that does that, but now we just ask how it happens. How does it happen? A guilty sinner on the brink of death has the blood of another applied to himself and he goes free. Does that sound familiar? Anything you've ever heard before. You're going to see it again in this book. In fact, it's what's going to happen at Passover, right? As that little lamb will have its throat cut and it will be bled. Would you be surprised? No, you wouldn't. Would you be surprised to know that the Hebrew word here, where is it? Why can't I find it? In the middle of verse 25, then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. 
Some of your translations will say, and caused it to touch at Moses' feet. Would you be surprised to know that that Hebrew word only appears one other time in the entire book of Exodus? You want to know where it appears? It is when they take the, uh, what's the big fluffy plant that they dip in the blood? The hyssop or whatever it is. And they dip it in the blood and they strike the post and the lintels, right? The lintel and posts. It's the only other time in the book of Exodus. Blood is applied from the innocent to the guilty so that the one who is near death goes free. In fact, did you know that the, uh, the ancient rabbis understood um, that really in the book of Exodus there were two scenes of, of blood covering. And in the life of an Israelite, there were two great experiences of the memorial of blood covering. They were in the blood of circumcision and they were in the blood of the Passover. That was a Hebrew understanding. And every Israelite saw these two events as part of their identity. And here I think it's given a right picture. Why is it so important, by the way? I just need to read this passage to you. I can say it, but hear it directly from the Lord. This is why Yahweh almost kills Moses. Jot down Genesis 17, starting in verse 10. This is what God said to Abraham when he created circumcision, or when he applied circumcision. Circumcision already existed in the ancient Near East, but when he made it for his covenant. Genesis 17:10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your descendants after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. The sign of the Mosaic covenant is the circumcision of the males. It is not the sign of our covenant today. Is there a sign for the new covenant? Do you know what it is? We did it this morning. It's baptism. Which, by the way, makes you pause and consider. You think baptism is important? All I know is Moses almost died because he didn't do it. <laughs> I'm not going to go that far. But I'm going to say the sign of the covenant is a big deal to the Lord for the sake of his name and for obedience. This is the Lord's discipline and rescue of his child, yes, but of his ambassador this morning. How sweet. Finally, then, let's close. Woo! We made it. Finally, this morning, then, let's close by asking just this question, and I'll end here. I won't have time to go deeply into it. Will you know his wonders? Will you know his wonders? And will you give him glory? This morning, if this passage does nothing else for you and for me, my hope for you and my hope and my prayer for me is this, that it would just simply remind me I'm called to something glorious. I'm called to something impossible, and I desperately need to walk near to God day by day because it just ain't a game. It's, it's, it's not only serious and heavy and burdensome, it's also freeing and joyful and meaningful and life-giving. And where it ends is to touch again on a theme that's really going to be where it's all supposed to end, the giving of the glory of God by his people. 27, now the Lord said to Aaron, go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So this is, uh, meanwhile, back at the ranch, you know, while Zipporah is saving Moses' life, back in Egypt, the Lord said to Aaron, go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. By the way, pause there. 
what are you thinking if you're Aaron? How long has it been since he has seen or heard from Moses? 40 years. Does he even know if Moses is alive? As far as we know, no contact between them. Yahweh shows up and he's like, hey, you're going to go see your brother today. Or however long it takes to get there. And he shows up. And what did Moses say? Dude, this is nuts. You have no idea what I have seen. And Aaron's like, actually, I kind of think I might have an idea because he appeared to me too after 400 years. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. Question, he then performed all the signs. Who? I don't know. You got two antecedents. I think the most recent one is Aaron, but uh, you can fight over that at lunch too. They're both going to do signs before it's all over. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people, 31. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and they worshipped. What is the point and how should we read this passage? I think the right understanding of this passage is that we should understand that what we see here is Israel's little faith, but faith indeed. This is a genuine response to seeing the signs and to hearing. And it's the, it's the confirmation of the promises. They're not going to listen to me, Lord. Yeah, they will. Do this, and they will believe. And he does this, and they believe. They're also very quickly going to turn around and not believe. But where chapter 4 ends is with what I would see as their little faith. But it's genuine, and it should encourage us. Understand in the flow of Exodus, we have Israel as a nation, as a people who have largely forgotten their God. And so God is not only going to reveal himself to Pharaoh and reveal himself to Egypt, he's going to reveal himself so that his own people know his name. And he's going to reveal himself so that all the world can know his name. So at this point, they are a people who have in many ways forgotten their God. But what they sense is real. The Lord has returned. He has visited us. That's the literal translation. And he has been concerned about our affliction. And what is their response? They bow and they worship. Question for you and for me this morning. What does it take to turn my heart to worship? Am I slow to worship? Am I distracted by many other things? Am I too busy? Maybe even I, in my little faith, can say, Lord, there are so many things I'm worried about and confused about, but I I will bow and worship and sing your praise today. Can you do that this week, whatever else is going on? I hope you can. Well, the Lord desires to use you and me, be with you in the midst of it, and do glories that we can only imagine. May it be so, Lord. Stand with me. Let's close in prayer. Our great God and our Father, we thank you for your mercies and your patience with Moses. We thank you for your mercies and your patience towards us. And we thank you that you have given us an eternal calling to be a part of what you're doing in the world. Lord, not to us, not to us, O oh Lord, be the glory, but to your name said all your people. And together they said, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.